Turn with me again to John chapter 4. We started several weeks ago to study true worship, and as I was corrected by the Word of God last week, this verse we're going to look at doesn't talk about true worship, it talks about true worshipers. And so he's talking to us, God's calling us to be true worshipers, which implies it's possible to worship but not to be what's true in His sight. The word true here means open, honest, real, sincere. This, of course, is part of a story. We're not going to go back through all of it because we've done that before. This is a story where Jesus is on His way uh, through Samaria. Samaria was between uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee, which is up north. And he was traveling from Jerusalem, I believe, up towards Galilee and had to stop in Samaria. Samaria was a land where the, was, there, were, there was a racial issue between the Jews and the Samaritans. And we've talked about that before and gone into a little more depth. I'm not going to do that this morning. And Jesus stops by this well for water. While he's there, his disciples have gone off into the city of Samaria to, to purchase food. And a woman comes, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus uses this encounter for really several purposes. But one is if you read on in the story, you see a revival started out of this one encounter. Isn't that interesting? A revival can start out of one encounter. You know, you can look at your life and look at your prayers and look at uh, who am I? Who am I? You know, we look at the problems of the world and the situation of the world, even the situations that may be in our family or in our community, and it can look overwhelming to us and say, who am I? And we can be kind of discouraged and sit down, well, I might as well just sit down and do nothing. But here, here, an encounter with one woman changed a city. We're not going to go on at this point. We will later on to look at the impact of this. When Jesus encounters her, and of course, well, this is Jesus, the Son of God, but who are you? You and I are children of God. You and I have the same spirit living on us that Jesus had. And so there are many things to learn from this, but what we're focusing on at this point, because I believe a lot of it comes out of this, we're going to look in verse, starting in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, and that water shall, I shall give him will become, will become in him a fountain or a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus answered and said to her, You've said, Well, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. You've spoken truly. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And now she tries to change the subject, but I believe she's going right in the direction that Jesus was leading her. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Is the place You think that's the place we ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship, the salvation for salvation of the, of the Jews. This is where we're getting to, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
The more I read through this and meditate on it, the more I see is in here. The more things are tied together. I was seeing this morning as I was going back over this, we're talking about having an encounter with God, coming into God's presence. And here's a woman, without realizing it, she was in the presence of God. She was in the presence of God, but God in this case was, was housed in human flesh and was not obvious from the outside. And what he's doing is he's drawing her out of her own carnal awareness of self, drawing her up, trying to lift her up to a higher level of, and doing that through worship. There's so many things that come out of this, as I mentioned a minute ago. What comes out of this worship that he's bringing her to is a revival. That city is entirely changed. It changes her. It changes her from an outcast of society, a failure, to the, to the, to the founder, to the, to the catalyst that started a revival. But it all comes through an encounter with the living Christ. Many of us have been saved and Christians for years going about our routines and doing things, and it becomes sometimes weary. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It can be difficult. It becomes challenging. The issues of life begin to wear us down. And the, and the, the temptation is to want to get away from it, to take a vacation from the pressures and to get away from the pressures. And there's times you need to do that. But there are many times the answer that God has, the rest that God has, is not to get away from it, but to get closer to Him. He is the rest. His presence is the rest. His presence is the refreshing. But the place we're looking at here is in the verse that says, and for such the Father longs. We're starting out by... See, Jesus whetted her appetite. She came there without any clue what was going to happen, not realizing she was having an encounter with the living God. And what He wanted to do was to draw her heart, draw her appetite, Give her a desire for something because God can't open you to something unless you have a desire for it. But even God has to give you the desire. There are a number of you out there this morning, God's been trying to give you a desire for something and you don't recognize what it is. Situations in your life God wants to use to whet your appetite for something. Sometimes to whet your appetite means you've got to realize you don't, you don't want to stay where you are. Because we're human, we get comfortable where we are in the status quo, as difficult it may be. And sometimes God has to reveal to you where you are so that you can have a desire to get out of where you are because your desire is what opens you up to see things you don't normally see. And that's what's happening here. This woman's going through her normal routine. It was her normal routine to come out to that well probably at that same hour every day and to draw water, to take it back to her family, to whatever she was bringing it back to for maybe herself for that day and the guy she was living with. And Jesus wants to whet her appetite because he wants to show her and reveal to her something better, something more that he has for her. He wants to show her the kingdom of God that's present with her and all that that means. There's something God has for us, something God has for this church, something God has for this community that he wants to use this church for, something that God desires to do. But in order to walk into the fullness of it, God's calling us to another level. In order to do that, he wants to whet our appetites to whet our appetites. And that's what this portion of the study is about. God wants to whet your appetite. So turn with me again to Exodus chapter 19. We were in this study last week. And we're going to take our time in it because it's worth in it. There's a lot in here to see. Exodus chapter 19. This is the children of Israel that have... God has formed this nation out of a man. 
God's desire was to have a relationship with a people that belonged to him. One of the reasons of that was to reveal to the world what God was like. God uses relationships to reveal what he's like. That's one of God's purposes for marriage. God wants to use your marriage and my marriage as an avenue to reveal to others what the love of God is like when he takes two people very different, with very different ways of looking at things and brings them together and joins them together as one. And as we learn to walk together in love, the love of God for each other and that covenant relationship, you can experience what a relationship's like by just coming into a home, by meeting a couple. Say, boy, that's a couple I'd like to be around. There's something about them. It's the love of God that they have for each other. On the other hand, when that love is not operating, it's just the opposite. And so God wanted to do that with the people, so he called a man named Abram. He started from scratch. He didn't take a people that already existed. He took a man out of a people that already existed and said, I want you, and I want to reveal myself to you. I want to enter into a covenant with you, and I want to take you from where you are, and I want to put you in a place you've never been to before. You don't even know where it is. You're going to have to trust me to go there. But I want to form out of you a people that are going to be my people that will belong to me, that will have an intimate covenant relationship with me. And out of that, I want to use that as a witness to the world of what I'm like. They can see what I'm like through how I relate to you. And this man obeyed. His name was Abram. God entered into a covenant with him. We're not going to go back over that whole story. But there came a time later on in the third generation when a famine was coming on the land. And God said, I've got to take this people. And he led them through a story which we're not going to get into either, through Joseph into Egypt because he was through Egypt was going to provide for them through this great famine. But they overstayed their welcome. They overstayed their need to be there. And they became complacent. They became comfortable with the fact that the Pharaoh was providing their food even though they paid the price of giving their freedom up into his hands. And then there came a time when they got tired of that and they cried out for deliverance. We saw that the story also represents your deliverance from the world and my deliverance from the world because Egypt represents the world to us. God delivered his people out of Egypt and used a man named Moses to do that and brought them across the Red Sea. He supernaturally parted that Red Sea, brought them out into the wilderness, which is what we call Saudi Arabia today, down to the southern part to the mountain called Sinai. He brought them down there. And in chapter 19 God calls of Exodus, God calls Moses up onto the mountain and tells him what he wants to do and why he brought the people out. And we've already began to look at this last week, but I want to just kind of call us back to it. Exodus 19. And God calls Moses up on the mountain, and look at verse 4. He says, to, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed... Well, let's go back to verse 4, yeah. And you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And we looked last week, not only did he bring them to himself, but he brought you out of the world and he brought me out of the world. And why did he bring you out of the world? And why did he save me out of the world? To bring us to himself. Not to join a religion. Not to become part of some movement. We've studied this last year when Jesus approached people. He didn't say, I'm starting some religion. I'm starting something new. Would you come and join it? He invited them personally into a relationship with him. In each case that we saw, he said, come, James. Come, John. Come, Nathaniel. Come, Peter. Come and follow me. And that's what God is doing here with his people. And that's what God has done with you and me. He's called us out of the world to himself. And notice what he goes on to say. Verse 5, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be to me a special treasure. 
God's saying, I've called you to be a special treasure to me. His treasure, value. You know what a treasure is? It's something valuable, something that you, that you regard highly, something that you protect, something you watch over, something you look at and you, and you just, it, it blesses you to look at. And that's what a treasure is. And God said to them, if you will do what I say, I want you to be my special treasure, God's special treasure. Well, you were brought out of the world personally to be His special treasure treasure. You may have been a reject in your family or reject in your school. You may have been a reject in society. You may have been found by God in the slums, but you're a special treasure to Him. You're a special treasure to Him. You're a special treasure to Him. He's called you to Himself. He's called you to Himself. You shall be for me, verse 6, a kingdom of priests. That's people that have a direct access to him. And a holy nation. We've looked at the word holy. Holy means we belong to him. These are the words God said to Moses, you shall speak to the children of Israel. And we saw that Moses came down off the mountain and gave them those words. And they said with all the sincerity of their heart, and we'll do everything God says. They say that two or three times to him. But we'll find out they didn't do everything. God said. They had the best of intentions. I don't believe they were lying. They were responding to the opportunity that God gave them. But what we're going to learn is your best intentions aren't good enough. They're fine when you're standing in church singing, I surrender all, along with everybody else singing it, or I love you, Lord. And there's nothing wrong with the sincere intentions of our heart, but that's what they had. And they found that that wasn't enough. Not when the pressure's on. When the pressure's on, the sincere intentions of your heart begin to get wobbly. And the relationship that you have with God, personal, living, vital relationship, is what sustains you at that point. And so they had the best of intentions, but they weren't good enough. It took more than that. And God knows that. So God told Moses, go down to the people, tell them to take three days and prepare yourself. We'll talk about that later on. And then I'm going to come down on the third day and I'm going to call them to myself. So verse 17 is our key verse here, really for this study. It's the one that God spoke to me. Well, let's go to verse 16. And then when it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with their God. That's what God wants to do. When you come in here on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, God wants His people to come here and meet with them. Yes, you can in your prayer closet. Yes, you can in your car. Yes, you can in your job. But He called them as a group too. There's something about coming together. There's something about coming together as God's people God wants to meet with us. I know we do it by faith. I know we believe God's presence is here because God's Word says that He dwells in us. God's Word says when two or more of us are gathered in His name, here, there is He in our midst. And we believe that so whether we feel it or not. But God wanted them to have an experience with Him. God wanted them to have an experience with them. This last Monday, my wife and I celebrated 46 years of marriage. 
When I met her, we were some 500 miles apart. She was in school in southern Ohio and I was in a school in upstate New York. And after I met her and fell in love with her, I would drive that route every other weekend to see her. What motivated me was not a principle or an ideal. What motivated me to write to her, I never wrote letters in my life. But I wrote to her every day because we didn't have, I know I'm shocked you, we didn't have emails and texting. We had to take a piece of paper and a pen and, and, you know, dear Anita or my dearest, you know, and write those letters. She's now hoping she can find those letters. She thinks maybe some, there's somewhere in all our moves in the house somewhere. Why does she want to find the letters? It'll call her back. What was it that motivated me to write every day and her to write every day and save up my money so I could call her? What motivated me to, to, to get in a car at 5 o'clock in the morning and drive 8 hours and pick her up and then drive back Sunday night through blizzards and snowstorms? I went through three major snow belts in the wintertime. What motivated me to do that? It wasn't a concept of Anita. It wasn't an ideal of Anita. I had an experience of her. She touched me in a way. She touched my heart. There was a passion to see her, to be with her. And there was a passion that she had to be with me. That's what's missing in so many of us. We're doing what we do because we're supposed to. And that's fine because there are times you've got to do that. But where's the passion? Where's the passion? The passion doesn't come by faith. The passion comes by an experience. And yes, you can do things that can help develop the passion, but there's something that happens when you have an experience with God. There was a woman that comes here. She's 80 years old. And a few weeks ago when we had a healing line second service, she was dramatically healed. She couldn't lift her arm. There was pain in her arm. The medicine they gave her wouldn't do it. And we laid hands on her. She said, I felt an electricity go through me. She didn't know anything about the power of God. She didn't know anything about it. She felt an electricity go through her. The pain disappeared. She could lift her arm. But the biggest testimony is her personality changed. She's changed into a positive person. Her son contacted me. He says, I hardly know her. This is his mother. I hardly know her anymore. More than that, her daughter-in-law said, I hardly know her. What is it? It was an encounter with the living God. And that's what God was drawing them out to. Another thing is that you'll see, well, we'll get and let God tell us instead of me telling you. He brought them out to meet with God at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain greatly quaked. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered by voice. And the Lord came down on the Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses, called Moses up to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Then what you find in chapter 20 through verse 17 is God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Now go over to chapter 20. We're going to pick up at verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunders and the lightnings and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll hear you, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come down to test you that his fear may be before you. We looked at this last week. Wait a minute, that seems confusing. He says on the one hand, don't fear, but God's come down to test you so you'll fear. So he must be talking about two different fears. The first fear is a fear 
of God, afraid of God, because when you're afraid of something, you run away from it. You may not run physically away from it. You can run emotionally and spiritually away from it. You just shut down and I'm not going there. Because I'm afraid of what it means. I'm afraid of it. But there's another fear Moses is talking about, which is a reverence, a respect for who God is. Because what we're going to see here, and we touched on this last week, is these two different fears take them in two opposite directions. The people run away from God because they're afraid of God. Moses has a reverential fear for God, and it draws him to him, God. And that's where we are right now. We're kind of at a fork in the road. Are we going to be afraid of God and run away and just go do our religious routine? Or are we going to develop a reverential fear of Him the way Moses did and be drawn closer and closer to Him? That's a choice we have to make. We'll see that they made a choice. Moses made one choice and they made another choice. But look at this thing. He says, God has come down to test you. That word, I don't like that word. I never, in school I didn't like tests. Because what tests do is they reveal where you are. And, you know, there were some things I just, some areas where I struggled in tests. Some kind of tests I did well on. Some, I didn't do, like multiple choice and fill in the blanks because I overthought the questions too many times. I like the test where I could explain what I thought it was. But test can put pressure on us because they reveal where we are. But this word test also means in Hebrew, training. Training. Training is when someone changes your behavior by leading you through certain experiences. God wants to train them in something. They've come out of a land where they've been ruled by an, by an ungodly man serving ungodly idols, demonic idols. And, and, but on the other hand, that land provided their needs. It fed them, it gave them water. And now they're out without that provision and they're out, they're going to be tempted, God knows, to go back into their old patterns and God wants to train them so that instead of under pressure going back to the where they used to be, to want to go on and follow Him. And to do that, God knew that they needed some kind of an experience with Him. And that's what this testing is about. It's a training. And so the people, look at this, that you might, God, do not fear, God has come down to test you, to train you, that His fear may be before you, His reverence be before you, so that you may not sin. And this is one of the reasons that sin is so rampant in the church today. That the church doesn't look very much different than the world does today. Because we don't have a reverential fear of God. We become so confident of our rights and so confident by faith of what we have with God that we think we can kind of stroll in here and do whatever we want and have a very casual attitude towards a God that's a holy, righteous God and, and just live our life the way we want because after all we have grace. We live under grace. The Bible calls that presuming on grace. Well, that was popular. So let's go over to... Um, so we see here two fears. One that drew Moses closer to God. And listen, the result of that was he worshipped God. 
and he obeyed him. The people withdrew from God, did not worship God, and therefore did not obey him. And therefore, as a result, were not able to receive the fullness of what God had for them. In chapters 21 and 22 and 23, God gives them certain rules for operating among themselves. Now we're going to go to chapter 24. We did this last week, but I want to go through a little bit of it again. And now God calls Moses back up with some of his leaders. In the meantime, God, Moses, goes through a ceremony at the bottom of the mountain where they enter into this covenant to respond to what God just told them to do. And now we're going to pick up here in verse 9. And Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven to the elders of Israel. And when they saw, the, they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone, it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. And, and so they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. So they came up to a certain point on the mountain, and now God, they could see they could see the feet of God. They could see the, 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 what he's walking on is not the dirt and the stones of that mountain. And the Lord God said to Moses, you come up. So he calls Moses to the top of the mountain. And be there, and I will give you tablets of stone, the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain with God of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Ur are with you. And if any man has a difficulty, let them go to him. So in other words, I'm leading, leaving Aaron and Ur in charge down here while I go the rest of the way up. And then Moses went up into the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The challenge that the children of Israel have is they've just come out of generations in, Israel, in Egypt where the only thing that they saw was a God were images made by man. Golden calves, golden goats, things that man has made that have been worshipped. And God wants to bring them out of that awareness and introduce them to the true and the living God, that He is real, He's holy, He's powerful, He's awesome, and He wants to be their God. He's introducing Himself to them. And so He's doing this, first of all, by calling their leader up there Revealing himself to him, giving him instructions, and then telling him to draw the people. But we've seen now they're afraid they're going to stand off. So God's got Moses on the mountain. They can see the top of the mountain. They can see the glory of God down there. God's glory here has come down. God's glory appears in the Bible in a number of different forms. Here it's appearing as fire and as thunder and as a cloud. And the mountain is shaking. And Moses is up there for 40 days. He leaves Aaron, his brother, and Ur in charge. What happens now while he's up there is the people get restless because they want a God they can see. They want a God they can touch. They want a God that they can, that they can make themselves. If they don't have a relationship, if you don't have a relationship with the real and living God, you'll make a God yourself. Because we have to have a God. 
We have to have something we worship. We have to have something that we believe is in control. We have to have somebody we believe, something that we believe is there that's bigger than we are, that can see more than we are, that can do things for us. We have to have that in our lives. And if you don't have the real God as one, you'll make one. It may be your job. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. It may be your car. It may be something, your job. It may be something in your life that you have put all that, invested that into as becomes your God. But only if He is our God in a living way can we truly have the strength to obey Him and to follow Him. All right, let's go on. Let's go over to um, chapter, uh, that was chapter 24. Let's go, now, what happens on the mountain now is Moses is called up on the mountain in chapters 25 uh, through 31. God's giving Moses the pattern for the building of a tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. We're not going to get into it so much here. We may do that later on. But if you're really interested, there's a book that I wrote specifically on that that's in our bookstore or you know, other great things you can look online and get about studying the tabernacle itself. But the purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell in the midst of His people in one of the rooms of that tent and that they could have a way of coming and worshiping Him. And there was a whole system of priesthood. There were special garments. There was a special anointing oil. There was special furniture. And all of that was significant so that they could come and worship the God who wanted to dwell in the midst of them. But there are incredible limitations. Only the high priest, one day a week, wearing, one day a year, wearing just the right clothes, having gone through just the right ritual, could come into that presence of God. And that's the instructions that Moses is being given on the mountain. However, while that's going on, the people down at the base of the mountain are getting restless. And in chapter 32, they come to Aaron and say, we don't see this Moses anymore. We don't know what's become of him. Let us build for ourselves a golden calf. And Aaron fails in his leadership. Because he's more moved by what the people, by the, his need for the people's approval than he is to please and to serve his God. And so he gives in and they form this God that they now worship as the God that brought them out of Egypt. They're not trying to worship him as the devil. They're not trying to worship him as some demonic image. They're saying this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt, but they've made him themselves. If you're not careful, you can make God into who you want Him to be. And the way God has given to us to know what He's like is in the Word He's given to us. And I've seen too many preachers and too many books that have their own idea of what God's like, and they change the Scriptures, they turn the Scriptures to meet what they say God's like, instead of allowing the Scriptures to reveal who God's like. That's the same as building this calf. That's making God into who we need Him to be or want Him to be so that I'm more comfortable with this God instead of adjusting myself to who God really is. All right, let's go on. There's so much in here we could look at, but we want to get somewhere. Chapter 33. At the end of chapter 32, God says to Moses, you've got a problem in the camp. You need to get down there. Moses goes down. He sees what they're doing. He administers punishment. And God says at one point, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God says, I've had it with his people. They're stiff-necked people. I want to fry them. 
I want to take this nation and turn them into a puddle of grease. I'm starting over. Listen to this. But I want to start over with you. There's a little side lesson. The Bible says Moses was the most humble man. He needed that humility because if God says the people that have been frustrating you, driving up a wall, insulting you, don't understand why you're doing what you do, I'm angry on your behalf. I want to fry them and you and I are going to start over again. That's pretty heady stuff unless you're humble. And Moses intercedes on their behalf, even to the point of saying, God, if you've got to destroy my life to save them, here it is. That's the true heart of an intercessor. If you've got to take my life to redeem these people that have given me so much trouble, take it. Now, you, don't, you can make that casually to somebody, but you make that to God, God has the ability to do that. And Moses argued with them and he said, with God, and he says, if you destroy them, then what are the Egyptians going to think? What's the world going to think? They're going to think you couldn't get your people. It's interesting if you read this discussion, it's kind of like mom and dad having a fight over the kids. Because God says, they're your people you brought out. And Moses says, no, they're your people you brought out. (laughs) It's your son. No, it's your son. And then God calls Moses back up on the mountain, and that's where we're going to pick up. Chapter 33. The Lord says to Moses, depart from here. This is what God's now going to say. God's forgiven them. Judgments come. But this is the consequence. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people who you brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. Look at this, verse 2. I will send my angel, my representative, before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll send my angel, my representative, in front of you, but I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you. God's saying to them, all right, I've forgiven you. I'm going to still get you where I wanted you to go. I'm going to still protect you. I'm going to still provide for you. I'm going to give you what you need, but I'm not going with you. And this is what begins to separate out. And this is where so much of the church is today. So much of the church today is looking for what God's going to do for us. Or God's, and God's promised to do amazing things for us. We're looking for God's direction, God's protection, God's provision, all these things. And the Bible, God's promised those things to us. But if that's all we're looking for, we're, there, we're really just like Israel at this point. God said, I'll, send, I'll take you where I told you I was going to go. I'll send somebody, I'll send an angel to get you there. And I'll feed you, I'll provide you, I'll protect you, I'll drive out all the enemies. But my presence isn't going to go with you. Now watch the reaction. Watch the reaction. Because he said, I will consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means they wouldn't either bow their head to him Also, a stiff neck won't turn to the left or the right. It's set on what it sees. This is the way I believe. This is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. That's what stiff neck is. And when all the people heard that bad news, they mourned and no one put on their ornaments. Later on, we see God told them that they had to take them off. The children of Israel stripped them from themselves on Mount Horeb. Verse 7. 
So Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the meeting. And it came to pass that everyone that sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of the meeting, which is outside the camp. So it was that whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose, and each person stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone to the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle, a pillar of fire came, a pillar of cloud came down and stood at the door, and the Lord talked to Moses face to face as a man talks with his friend. That's what verse 11 says. Verse 12. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you found fake grace in my sight. So Moses said, All right, you've said you're going to get us there, but you've not said who you're going to send with us. And you've told me I have favor with you. I want to know who you're going to send us. Verse 13, Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation really is still your people. And God said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The word you there in Hebrew is singular. God's saying, All right, I'll go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest but I'm not going with them. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, then don't bring us up from here. For then how will it be known that, you, that your people and I have found grace in your sight except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people, and I from all the people on the face of the earth. In other words, Moses is saying, look, that's wonderful you're going to take care of us. It's wonderful that you're going to guide us. It's wonderful you're going to get us there. But what makes us different from everybody else on the face of the earth is your presence with us, your presence in us. That's how I know we have your grace, because we have your presence. And the church today has become so satisfied with the things of God, the things that God has for us, that we've lost our appetite, if we ever had it, for Him Himself. I mean, I can't imagine how God feels. It's hard to do unless the Word says. But imagine, and we saw He gets angry at them at some places. Imagine He's given everything for them. He's delivered them. They've been rebellious and complained the whole way. They complained about the food which He gave them freely. He complained about the water which He gave them freely. He delivered them. He destroyed their enemies. He cried. They cried out to Him. They asked for the deliverance. He delivered them. He's bringing them to a place that flows with milk and honey, a place of great provision and great blessing. And they're arguing with Him, complaining on the way to the place of blessing. I shared with you last week, some people believe that the promised land is heaven. I personally don't think so because when you read about the promised land, there were enemies in there. There were obstacles. There were kingdoms that had to be overcome. I don't believe heaven has enemies and obstacles and kingdoms we have to overcome. I believe it represents the rest of God, the maturing in Christ, the place that God has called us to get to while we're here. But if all we do is complain and look at ourselves and what we have and what we don't have on the way, we're just like they were. What keeps you from doing that? Worshiping Him, drawing into His presence, coming with a desire to satisfy His need and my, not my need. 
And this is what God was calling them up to, drawing them to. Moses responded the right way. They responded the wrong way. All right. (laughs) See, once you get a taste, you want more. Once you get a taste, you want more. Verse 17. So the Lord says to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please. This is a man that has been 40 days in his presence in the cloud. He says, that's not enough. I want more. Show me your glory. The word glory means essence, the weightiness, the essence of who God is. I've seen your cloud. I've seen your lightnings. I've heard your voice. I want more. I want more. I want to see who you really are, your essence. All right. Verse 19. God said, I will make my goodness, my essence, pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. The face, when you identify somebody, you do by looking in their face, don't you? You know, you re- oh, I remember your face, I remember your face. That's our personality comes through our face. I mean, our actions come through our hands and our feet, but our personality comes through our face. Revelation ends by saying that in the new, the new Jerusalem that God brings down here, they're not going to be 30-watt bulbs, 75-watt bulbs, energy-efficient bulbs. There's not even going to be a sun or a moon. The entire place will be lit by the light that comes from the face of God. You and I can't imagine what that light's by. I think it's Peter that calls it unapproachable light. God's saying, you, you, you know, you, you can't look at the because the, the, the intensity of my glory is coming from my face. You can't look at that. But here's what I will do. Here's what I will do. Now notice, this is something Moses is asking for. But his appetite's been whetted. He's got a taste of something, and the more he's got a taste of it, the more he wants. But it's different. You know, if you're really thirsty on a hot day, the most refreshing thing to drink is water. The most refreshing thing to drink is not a soft drink that's sweet because they know what they're doing. They put something in there that's not going to satisfy you. It's going to make you want more. So the sugar, the sweetness in there is desired, designed to have you come back for more and it never satisfies. But what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? I have for you a well a fountain of water that it, when springs up in you, it will satisfy you. And that's what God is saying to Moses here. I will give you rest. I will satisfy you. And Moses is saying, so he's not saying this because he's compelled to. He's saying this because he's got a taste of something and now he wants more. There's more. I know there's more. I want to see more of you. I want to see you at a level. I know there's more. I can sense it behind the cloud. And he's getting bold. Notice God's not angry at him. God's not saying, who are you? God's calling him his friend, saying, I speak with him face to face. 
verse 21. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by, and then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, the back of me, but my face cannot be seen. Of course, the rock represents Christ and the privilege that you and I have to come into His presence. And He is, when you come to Christ, He's put you in the cleft of the rock. So that all your weaknesses and all your failures and all my weaknesses and all my failures and all my good intentions that I may not have come through on all the stuff that I know is wrong, I can still come to the same place where Moses was. But the question is, how thirsty are you? How hungry are you for him? An encounter with the living God will change you forever. Ask the Apostle Paul. Ask the woman at the well. Ask Peter, James, and John. Those aren't just historical events. I'm an historical event. You're an historical event. Somewhere along the line, you had an encounter with him or you wouldn't be here today. What I'm suggesting to you is God is saying to Faith Christian Center, I want more. I desire more of you. And I desire to give more of myself to you. Because like Israel of old, you are my people. I called you out of the world. I've called you to be a special people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peculiar doesn't mean weird. It means special, unique. That has been called forth to show forth, ah, the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Woman, no longer on this mountain or in Jerusalem is it where you worship God. For God is looking for true worshipers. True worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's longing for it. He's longing for it. He's longing for it. I sensed this morning as we sang to him, I love you, Lord. Sometimes we pull back because we think, well, who am I? What am I? Well, we're in Christ. That's who you are. You're a child of God. Our children started walking and started talking and started coming to us to tell us they loved us. They didn't look down and say, well, that's not very educated. You You didn't use the right syntax in that sentence. You know, your choice of words wasn't very good. No. My child came and said, Dada, Daddy. You go to work the next day, he says, Guess what my son said last night? He said, Dada. And no, he was just a gas. No, he said, Dada, I know he did. You know. What does it do to your heart? Just think what you can do to his heart. So what God's calling us to do 
is to come to that place where when we come here, we come in with an attitude, God, I'm coming to give something to you. What can I give to you? Who's done everything for me? My love, my devotion, my praise, my worship. I want to be a blessing to you in here together with my brothers and my sisters. Let's pray. Father, as we come on this journey that we believe you're calling on, so many times, Father, we're tempted to pull back or just sit down because we don't see how we can get there or we're not adequate or we're not enough or whatever the reason may be. But Father, this is something you're calling us to. And so all we've got to do is respond to you and be willing and to be open and to be honest with you and say, here we are. Teach us. Draw us to yourselves, to yourself that we may bring pleasure to you. We don't know the way. We don't know how to get there. But we, our eyes are on you. Father, during this week, as we think about the things we've heard this morning, bring scriptures across our path. Begin to open our own personal eyes to your desire for us, your desire for us to worship, your desire for us to praise you. Begin to open our eyes, see things around us, Lord. Speak to us, show us, draw us, so that when we come together Wednesday night and we come together next Sunday, we come with hearts focused on you. Thank you for all you've done for us. Open our eyes to see more and more of what you have done for us, that we may be more and more grateful every day. For thanksgiving is the doorway into this, and praise is the next step that we may come and worship you. For that we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.